Welcome to Party Zone Revisited. The who's who in dance music, then and now. With me, James Hyman. And with me, Simone Angel. Good afternoon. Or good morning or good evening. How are you doing? Time difference. Who cares? You are somewhere in the world. It's a certain time and I welcome you, whatever time it is. I welcome you too. I welcome everyone who's watching this, listening to this, supporting this, subscribing to this, sharing this, because it is a look back at what we were doing at MTV, particularly the dance programs, Party Zone and Dance, which you presented and I produced. But you're doing a VJ special today with a Mr. Toby Amys, the -hmm. charming, handsome man that he is and was and still is. A couple of memories that spring to mind with him is we went to the North Pole, a place called Spitsbergen, which apparently is the closest you can live towards the North Pole. It was in around 1996 and 1997. There was a group, an act, a solo guy. I don't know if you remember Biosphere. He was signed to Renart's Apollo label. They were, it was an ambient offshoot of R&S. Apollo was very cool. I mean, really good stuff. Chill out music. Uh, roundabout when the time may have been uh, coined, the term coined. And Biosphere also, if you may remember, his music was used in a very cool Levi's advert directed by Michel Gondry called Drugstore. Rainy black and white, kid goes to a pharmacy, he buys some condoms and the sort of shop owner's like, okay. And then later on, he rings the bell and he's come to see that guy's daughter. Really bonkers. And dig out everyone, go and get, there's a series of DVDs called the Director's DVDs of all their work, like Michel Gondry, Mark Romanak, Stefan Senwi, can't remember all the other ones were. Um, all And they're brilliant. They're very cheap on Amazon second hand. You can buy these things for like two pounds. Chris Cunningham did one. Anyway, I'm digressing. We've actually shot a Super 8 video there on all the glaciers again uh, for a band called Terra Nova based in Berlin for Horst Weidenmuller's DJ Kick series. If you remember those DJ Kick CDs, Mm-hmm. They always had a bonus sort of exclusive track on them. I think this one was called Precipice. And it was basically, we had Mexican wrestling masks. Everyone had Mexican wrestling masks on. Again, the video is probably online. Certainly not like a Michel Gondry video. But anyway, the video is online and everyone's running around with these masks. Great tune. And Toby and I had a laugh. There was I also remember a phone box um, that had an axe. And I was very into phone boxes back then because there was this great magazine called 2600, all about hacking and phones and, and, you know, amazing things that you could play around with. And on the back of this magazine, 2600, it had pay phones from around the world. So I think I sent them in the picture of the North Pole phone box. Why do you think it had an axe? Why, why do you think it had an axe on the, by the pay phone? Certainly wasn't to end your call. It was Something if a polar bear. Ice hacking through ice? I thought it was if a polar bear. No. Like a polar bear comes up to you, you're like, whoosh. So why was it? I I don't know. I think it was. I don't think it's like I'm going to end the call and you're going to cut the call. I think it was literally polar bears. Like if if you're suddenly going to be pounced on, you've got an axe. Who knows? Um, Anyway, you can email, text in, tweet in, whatever. Good memories of him. 
120 Minutes Alternative Nation he was a presenter for. Mm -hmm. Remember all that? Do you remember anything else he presented? Uh, they're the ones for me. So he did the equivalent of what we were doing for yeah. indie music. What you else know, did he do? The thing that I just remember about Toby was that he was just always so effortlessly cool. I mean, some people try to be cool yeah. and some people just emanated. And he was just, he was just it, you know? Like, do you know what I mean? Even when he got hit once, I think it's a famous little clip, which he they used to trail, he got whacked by his very cool microphone, I think smack in the head. I think it cut him. He had that Johnny Depp style, didn't he? <laughs> so even then he was cool. There's a clip of that. Oh, if we can I think he also if we can Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like with his very he had that amazing microphone when he did a lot of presenting. He stood by I'll tell you another thing I remember from it. It's all coming back to me. He did an amazing thing, kind of post MTV. He took a very powerful picture of 9-11. He was right there when 9-11 happened. And he took some fascinating picture, which I think the Guard yeah. yeah, the Guardian did a whole piece on it. Again, it will all be online. And of course, these days, I mean, he's a film director. Mm -hmm. He's been getting a lot of praise for um, the latest movie that he's been doing. The Court of the Crimson king am i saying that right i'll i'll he might have to correct me on that one but um yeah he's a successful documentary maker so it'd be interesting to talk to him about that i look forward to it as ever Toby Amis, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Samantha. Oh, when James and I were talking about you, um, we're trying to bring up some memories, and the memory that he came up with was going to the North Pole with you. Mm. Do you remember that trip? Svalbard, yep, to the uh, the northernmost inhabited point on the globe. It's the beginning of a new and excitingly different story. As you can probably tell from the snow on the mountains behind me, we've just entered the Arctic Circle. So, here we are on the northernmost point of the globe that a record company can afford to fly us. It's about one o'clock in the afternoon, but you can't actually tell here whether it's one o'clock in the afternoon, one o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the evening, whatever. Um, <clears throat> we're off on some kind of boat trip now. It was, uh, you know, I think that was one of the, the times, well, I mean, there, I have to say that there were loads of times when even though I made the absolute most of the sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll that we got at MTV, there were times, loads of times, we were like, I can't believe I'm getting, I'm allowed to do this or getting away with it in some instances. And when we went to Svalbard, I was just like, this is absolutely brilliant. I mean, so we went to Tromso, which is pretty far north, and then we went north and north and north and north and then got stuck. So it was great. Wow. Cool. So... When you think back of your MTV days, what are the moments that kind of stick out for you? Like whenever you're just, you know, having a beer or sipping a glass of wine with someone and they ask you for some funny anecdotes, what are the things that 
usually come to mind first? Maybe not Svalbard. I don't know. No, Svalbard was pretty good. Um, I think I think you know in I think the first maybe the second week I was at MTV, I interviewed that um, band Eternal, mm-hmm. and they were quite rude and and not very nice and. And I think I got a complaint because I'd asked them some relatively tough questions. Yeah. Um, you know, because I was doing the news. And um, and I think I remembered at the time, I was like, oh, God, am I in trouble? And then thinking, well, no, I think it's, I think it's good that you ask pop stars to be honest and, and you know, real about what they're doing because it matters. I mean, that's 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 why I worked at MTV. I've always wanted to work at MTV. It's because music really matters to me and and it really matters to the people who watch the channel. And yeah. so it's, I mean, we had a fucking laugh, you and I, Simone, probably more than most of the video <laughs> jobs. But, um, we... Um, you know, I, but I think I think that having that understanding that that you are you are dealing with something that adults don't necessarily necessarily take seriously, but but our the people who watch, they um, you know that the music really mattered to them. So I think excuse that's my first beer burp. Um, <laughs> not ever. I mean, on this podcast, um, right? <laughs> but, um, I, uh, so with regard to things that happened, um, I guess there were things that that happened that were like deeply embarrassing to me. Like the Sex Pistols interview was like really, I just felt I didn't sleep the night before. I was fucking terrified. It was just as difficult as I thought it was going to be. And I was, I mean, I was doing my best, but even when I watched that movie, I'm like, that's a fucking sh- shambles. That that interview is not a movie, um, but it's it sort of. But surely that you know, wasn't done uh, to you. Well, it, I, mean, I just think I just I mean all I can do is is control what I can do, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So so I don't go through life thinking, oh god, if only somebody hadn't done that thing. I just go through life thinking, you fucking idiot, you know, why didn't you? You should have done that. It's, that's my creative process, Simone, in a nutshell. I know, but, I know. It's, very, it's very annoying. I try to switch that off. You know, whenever that comes into my head, I just go, ego, shut up. Because I know that's what it is. It's just constantly telling me I'm, you know, haven't done things right. And so I just try and shut that voice off. So I know what you mean. But surely interviewing... I useful, that voice. <sighs> if I'm honest. I think it's like, because I can't, I've, I worked out a while ago that I can't, I can't really change my character at 50 fucking five, you know, I'm pretty much who I am now, but um, I hope that I can change my behavior a bit. And with regard to that voice, that's part of my character. That's who I am is to grow up thinking that like everything I do is fucking rubbish or whatever. Um, But so I just try and turn that onto the work now, not onto me. So I just think, how could this be better? You know, would you feel a bit better about yourself if you didn't think this film was so boring or whatever? Yes, you would. Therefore, why don't you use what you know about the process to make it less boring? And then you won't hate yourself so much tomorrow. So it's sort of, it's not, it's not ideal. 
and it probably sounds pretty crazy to sort of to say that, but that is that I just think, well, why not use it to make the work better right. and worry less about its impact on you? Yeah, you know? I mean, basically, you figured out a way to make it work. I think all of us figure out a way to make it work. There was some comedian, I forgot his name, and he was calling it his inner bastard. And he said, no one can be as cruel to me as my own inner bastard. He said, no matter whatever I do, he said, I love it whilst I'm doing it. And then as soon as it's out there, I go fall to bits and I hate it. (laughs) Any bad comment I take very personally. So I think anyone who's in the creative field kind of deals with that and deals with it in their own way. And it looks like you figured out a way to make it work. Well, I think that like I am so much happier and saner and fatter now that I'm behind the camera. Um, And and that's because my work is no longer me, you know? So so when when I was, say, doing Alternative Nation, which is, like, remains the best thing I've done in television. It's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Not, but I'm not big myself up there. I know people still say to me, oh, that show meant so much to me, you know, at a really difficult point in my life or whatever. And Catalina and Nick and I, who made that, that show, and Phil, too, who directed it, um, you know, we what I what I think made that show good, and what also I think made Party Zone good, is that we knew who were what who was watching it, and we were also we were like viewers ourselves. So we could, yeah. you know, we had an understanding of what that show should be. Plus, like you guys, we were it was really important to us to be in contact with the audience directly. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think Party Zone and Alternative Nation, before the bosses got involved or whatever, we were already sending out emails and stuff in a sort of unofficial way to, to connect with the audience. And I think that made you know, that that sort of that early version of social media in terms of having sort of this, you know, talking to your audience and having your audience talk to you. Right. Really, really made a huge difference with regard to those shows. I've forgotten the original question, though, what we were talking about. Oh, who cares about the original question? We'll come back to that. So it's just little stories of MTV. So let's actually go back. Let's let's really rewind it. I probably should have started with that. Um, oh, that's what, no, hold on. What I was going to say is that even though Alternative Nation was good, at the time I realised that you can't you can't, like, do a good show and walk off as the video jockey going, oh, God, my hair looked particularly cool then. Or the way I said that line that Nick wrote for me to say was particularly, you know, funny or whatever. Because it's like, you know, you can't remain sane and think that that is like a proper proper artwork or whatever. And so it was like, it's, I'm not saying it wasn't important, and it was really important to me, but there was so much focus on the individual when you were a video jockey, mm-hmm. that that I just don't think I don't think that's a very sane space to be. But when you can keep, when you can make work and have it outside of you, right? Then and that's that's where I've sort of found I'm much more comfortable now. Sort of having like, you know, I may be a total wanker, um, and that's what my inner voice tells me. <laughs> but at least I've made this thing, which is not me, it's just something I've right. made something I've made for other people, a film or whatever, that they like, 
And then, yeah. and so I'm much more comfortable with that thing than just thinking, you know, having too much emphasis on, on the person. I think that's why famous people go crazy. No, but I, I mean... And several me, did whilst we were working with them. Right. No, but to me, party zone, and I guess Alternative Nation, like you said, we were also fans ourselves. We loved the music and we were dedicated to the different music scenes that we were moving in. So you with the more indie stuff and me with the dance stuff. So to me, Party Zone, it was a team thing. It wasn't, okay, I was the one in front of the camera, but to me, it was about me and James working as a yeah, team. Yeah, absolutely. That's my point. And Chris, whoever. And so we were a team and the dedication for me was really about the artist. Like you won't believe the amount of times that James would call me up in the middle of the night or I would call him no, usually it was James calling me going, Simone, that's I'm in prison. Can you get me out? I've done it again. <laughs> I need $20,000 in bail money now. Can you help? No. He'd be like, listen to track three. And I'd be putting it on. And we'd literally be screaming at each other down the phone. And we'd like, we have to get these people on, like bands that no one had ever heard of. And it was so exciting to get these acts or these DJs and producers and, and bands and to give them the platform. So to me, that's what pla what Party Zone was. It wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't about me. It was about, about the scene. Yeah, no, I mean, that's my point. But 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 the the nature of the, the format in which we were working puts the emphasis on the person. And the people, not mentioning any names, who didn't even have a say in what the videos were, or, you know, I was a producer on Alternative Nation who didn't have any kind of creative input, didn't even write their own words. Mm -hmm. um, the focus was just on them as individuals, and I think that's too much emphasis on on someone, you know, yeah. who, who might have started off being quite narcissistic in, in the first place, not mentioning anything. It, I mean, it definitely, it is, it definitely is hard. I mean, dealing with with fame, dealing with celebrity, being in the public eye. Also, it, famous it, for what? For <laughs> being on TV. All I know, the but like, time. like all the time, we were. I when mean, we started. Oh, Here's yeah. a good anecdote for you, Simone. Yeah, go on. About the second or third week, I was. I started at MTV and I'd come from the States. I was at a stereo lab gig, right? Indie, indie royalty. And um, <clears throat> I was in the crowd and someone tapped me very aggressively on the shoulder. And I turned around and it was just some like indie bloke. And he went, you're that cunt from MTV. And I went, yes and no. <laughs> And then he went, no, 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 you're all right, though. But but that that to me, I just, that was quite healthy for me, having that in the back of my mind. But it was so British as well. And it was, you know, I think you spoke to somebody, um, I think it was Rebecca, you were saying how weird it was that, like, when you were in the UK, nobody really knew who you were. But then mm -hmm. you went to Europe and stuff, and, and you, yeah. you, know, you were that famous cunt from MPB. Yeah. I work, not you. You're not you. You, you know, but I work. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, that I I really struggled with that. I had quite a few people like that who would, for instance, say to me, like, okay, people would meet me and they go, "Oh, 
you're actually okay in real life. I hate you when you're on TV, but you're all right in real life. And then you stand there and you go, I don't know if this is an insult or a compliment. I don't know what to do with this. Or people would go up to me and go, oh, I always turn you off. Whenever you come on TV, I turn it off. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then they end up following you. And you're like, well, why are you following me? You don't like me. Go away. So that that was really quite hard. That well, You just don't know what to do with it. And it's obviously the ones who said they hated you the most, who seemed to be most obsessed. Yeah, and I, I I don't, well, I mean, I do, I do just as a rule of thumb, try to avoid the company of people who hate me, apart from my family, you know, I just have to, sort of, <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of choice there, but with regard to like, generally speaking, there's a lot of people in the world, so I, yeah. I try to sort of make that distinction, it's like, do you hate me? Okay, cool, yeah. well, I'm probably going to hang out with the people who quite like me, if that's, yeah. <laughs> for the time being, but, but I think that, I think that having met a lot of famous people now and having met a lot of crazy famous people, I think that I don't think you can be sane and walk around spending a lot of time thinking about how other people think about you. Right. But if you're famous, people have an idea about who you are. Yeah. So, so the reality of somebody who knows who you are because they've seen them, you on the television is that they have that particular idea of you. That's their reality. Mm-hmm. Your reality is, as in my, my old roommate, Bod, who I used to live with when um, I worked at MTV in Camden, used to say it was hilarious, like getting up, seeing me in the morning with like toothpaste down my front and like bearded and like, you know, scrunchy-faced and everything. And then he said, like, three hours later, he'd see me on the telly, all, like, you know, made up and, and everything. He was like, I don't know who that fucking guy is. Um, wow. But, but um, so that's your reality, is you know you're the person that walked out of the house covered in toothpaste or whatever, mm-hmm. with a hangover. Um, but when you meet the person that's seen you on telly, they have that other idea of who you are. And and so to have that, that experience be normal, you have to get inside their head to try and work out what they think of you based on what they've seen on you. And you can already see it. So I think it only really works if you have, you build a persona that is sort of like you, but it's not really you. Um, totally. But, but I think like, you yeah, know, I think why, why I like you on screen and and I'm trying to think of <laughs> I'm trying to think of some of the other VJs that I liked on screen. Hold on, give me ten minutes. No, I'm no, just I'm just I'm I'm joking. I'm absolutely joking. <laughs> I'm joking. But let okay. like let's say let's say let's say Davina, for example. Right. Who who I think has managed that the whole thing of being absolutely who she is. Mm-hmm. But also being, um, you know, really great, really fucking great at being a presenter. You know, I think she's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I've always thought she was fantastic yeah. as a presenter. Yeah. But I think it's very hard to find a place where you can absolutely be yourself, but also cope with being famous at the same time. You know, and yeah. and so, and I think to to ask somebody to to negotiate that when they're like twenty three. Is, it's a lot to put on people. 
Yeah. You know, really, it's I mean, I was 28 when I started, so, and I still didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Were you? You were 28? Yeah, been around the wow. block around. Most nice spring chicken. Wow. Huh. So, yeah, I think that's really the, the trick. I think you need to realize that the person that people see is part of who you are, but it's not the full you know that that's not all that you are and i think a lot of young people when they get into showbiz and they kind of end up losing themselves because they're not anymore who they were before they haven't quite grown into the new identity of themselves with that extra i don't know like element to their life and quite often they seem to just latch on to the image of what other people have and they end up believing that that's who they are themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons why they get so lost because it isn't really who you are. Like you said, it's a little bit of who you are, but it's the very shiny bit. It's the, yeah. it's the polished bit. It's the bit that is always in a good mood. And, you know, and if you actually start believing that that's who you are, I think that's when people end up getting really messed up. Yeah. And, and also if it happens to you when you're, you're young and, and super malleable. If you don't know who you are at that point, you can very quickly become defined by what other people think you are. Yeah. And other people don't know you very well. So tell me a little bit about your life before MTV, because I know nothing about your life before MTV. I never asked you about your life before MTV when we were there. So where should we start? Should we start all the way back at childhood? Sure, if you want. Uh, I was born in Birmingham. Were you? Yeah. So if you would like me to, I can speak in the vernacular. What? Uh, so the home of heavy metal. It was great when I lived in America. People were like, hey, where are you from, man? I'd be like, Birmingham. They're like, what? Where? I was like, well, so Worcestershire, Birmingham. They'd be like, well, yeah, okay. So I was like, do you know heavy metal? And they'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, we invented that, so you can fuck off. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm from the West Midlands. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Warwickshire initially, um, and then I grew up in a – it was a sort of – it was a large – I grew up in a large house, but it wasn't a posh house in terms of it didn't look super, super fancy, but it had, like – uh, we were it was sort of where I'm from in Worcestershire. It's it's the Vale of Evesham. It's the sort of the floodplain of the River Avon. So it's mm -hmm. and it's and it's surrounded by it's got the Cotswolds and the Malverns around it. So it's this very temperate uh, climate there. So it's really good for growing fruit, apples and pears and plums especially. Um, and so so the house that I grew up in was the end of an orchard that had been sort of subdivided. So we had all of these apple and plum trees um, in the house and chickens and we had a field that was at the back of the house. My dad used to rent that to farmers so we'd have cows or horses or stuff in it. Um, and the nearest village was about four miles away and that's a village called Inkborough, which for British people is the village that Ambridge the home village of the Archers, the long-running rural radio show on Radio 4 is from. So, wow. Um, so, and my first job was driving tractors, which I did at 14. <laughs> used to drive tractors on a pick-your-own farm. And um, my sister and I used to um, 
for pocket money, we weren't given pocket money. We used to go into the orchard and pick apples. And then we would sit outside the house and sell apples and plums to passing cars. And we were hustlers. So so I grew up. I never expected that childhood from you. That's amazing. Absolutely brilliant. You know, it was it was very it was very privileged, but not in terms of like, darling, here's some money, go and buy some stuff. Um, yeah. It was privileged in terms of, I suppose, the access to things that we had, and above all, it was privileged in terms of the access that we had to my sister and I had to ideas, because uh, my parents. Um, both very clever. My mum was an English teacher and a drama teacher, and my dad um, worked in the printing industry. But he's a brilliant painter. Went to the local private school, which was the Worcester Cathedral School, called King's Worcester, um, which again for English people is where um, the great Rick Mail um, went to uh, Blackadder. Went went to school there for me, and um, also Chris Tarrant. Went there. Evil King John was buried in Worcester Cathedral because he was too naughty to be in Westminster Cathedral. Um, so twice a week I used to, you know, be singing hymns looking at the, the tomb of a dead king. Wow. Um, and then, uh, but that's also where I discovered music, I guess, was, was sort of, I was a day boy, I wasn't a boarder. So my sister and I used to get the, the bus into town. And the, unfortunately, the bus station was very close to our house, so we were the first on the bus. But the interesting thing was that because we were first on the bus, we could get the back seat. So even though I was kind of nerdy at school, um, I used to have the cool the cool seat on the bus, but just just for reasons of geography. Also, men had to get up at fucking seven o'clock because <laughs> the bus took about an hour to get to school because it went all around the villages. Um, but that was quite good having, you know, having the cool seat at the back and it sort of was a blow for the nerds as well, because the cool kids didn't get to come and sit with us because most of my friends were nerds. Um, so if I wanted to see anybody, I used to have to cycle like six or seven miles just to go and see anybody. Um, so it was quite, it was a sort of very rural upbringing. I used to, Simone, I used to like fantasize that like, when I was about 14, that Boy George's limousine would break down outside our house. <laughs> and, and he'd like, you know, they'd have to come and ask to call the AA or something. <laughs> and he'd see me and he'd be like, hey, you're pretty cool for like a 12-year-old or 13-year-old or whatever. Oh, that was my dream. Was... Um, yeah. Instead, it was mostly like, you know, farmers looking at you funny because you looked funny. And, you know, and then in Worcester and on the weekends, uh, you had to you had to run a gauntlet. I, I used to when I was a goth. Well, when I was, I'm still a goth. But, you know, but um, <laughs> we um, we used to have to get from we had school on Saturdays, which is so unfair. But, right. but you had to get from school because school finished at like one o'clock or something. So you had to get from school in your uniform, which made you a target anyway. So you had to like work out a way of getting from your uniform into your goth uniform by the time that you got to the cool goth, the one cool goth pub in town. And so you'd be like, you'd be under threat for being, 
you know, one of the posh kids or whatever in town. And then you'd be under threat. You know, it's like, it was like, oh, no, that's not good enough for me. I want to be, I want to be under threat for decisions I've made. They made for me. So the, so the things I'm not surprised about, I'm not surprised about the fact that your mum's an English teacher because you've always had a way with words. To me, in my mind, I've always seen you as almost like, kind of like, like a beatnik poet kind of person. Like you always seemed a little bit, no, like just a way with words. And, and you always, it's funny because when I think back of our MTV days, you always struck me as too cool almost for MTV. You were like, like, you know, you had like the artist who was super cool. And then there was us and we we're on the outside. And to me, you were like, you were like one of them somehow. You had that rock and roll thing down somehow. I think I think you you I mean that's that's a very nice way of putting it and it's very sweet of you to say that. Thank you. I think that that I stopped presenting or rather I stopped wanting to present uh, when I realized that when I was doing because I used to do the big picture. Um mm -hmm. And then from doing the big picture, I got hired by Film 4 to do something very similar uh, for them, which is basically sort of covering film festivals, which on the surface of it sounds like a fucking great gig because I was just like poncing off to Sundance or Cannes or whatever, you know, interviewing loads of movie stars. However, at that point, I guess I was in my mid-30s at that point, I realized that what I was doing was going, so um, what's it like doing the thing that I really want to do? Right. And and when I realised that, I was like, oh. and and that was the start of a of a very painful and much longer than I expected journey of about ten years to actually get to the point where I was doing that. So I'm, you know, I'm now getting rejected by Cannes and Sundance. So that's an achievement of some some kind, I guess, right? Well, definitely. So let's get to that in a little bit. Then let's just rewind again. So you're in the countryside, you're going to, you know, the day boarding school. What happened after that? Because there's still a big gap between that and MTV. So how did the boy from the countryside end up in London? Uh, and I went MTV? to, I was meant to go to Oxford University. That was the plan. Uh, my grandfather, who is Australian, Tasmanian, um, was a Rhodes Scholar and, and Dad had been to Oxford as well. And so that was the plan is I was going to, you know, do the sort of classic English, you know, road to power, I suppose. Um, but I didn't really, I've always been a bit of a refusenik, don't like being told what to do. Um, so, so I decided I didn't want to do that. Uh, so instead, I was like, I think I want to, I want to go to art school. So in the UK, you have this thing called a foundation course, which is a really good idea, um, which is before you go to, to do your official degree, you basically go to an art school and do a foundation course where you fuck about for a year and you try lots of different things. And I, um, I really did fuck about for a year. This was in Cheltenham. And, and I tried lots of things, but not much of what I tried was actually making any kind of art. I just had a laugh. I just, I'd, I'd been at this relatively strict public school. And, and so I left and I had, um, 
I dyed my hair the day I left. I mean, I I see like kids on Facebook or whatever people, you know, my friends posting pictures of their kids and their crazy hair and stuff. And I was like, there's no fucking way I could have got away with any of that shit at, at four, you know, 14 or whatever. So, um, and I, I became a bit of a narcissist or I was just very into my looks at that point and stuff. And so I had this very long red hair. I was extremely skinny. And, and I suppose very good looking. I remember I saw a picture of you. Yeah. Thank you. Like you look like a model. Um, I did, I did do a bit of modeling and stuff. And I, and I just, I got adopted at art school. I got adopted by the people we used to call the fashion bunnies who were the people doing the fashion degree there. And because they were just the most fun and they were really, really witty as well. And so, and I got into not really drag, but I did a fair bit of cross-dressing at the time, partly because, you know, I really liked the attention. Um, and, and also because it was very fashionable at the time, you know, sort of when Taboo was happening and George mm -hmm. and Marilyn were sort of at the peak of their fame, I guess. And, and also, you know, to be frank, you saw more action if you wore makeup. You know, if I'm honest. Okay. Um, and but I mean, that's just. It's also. It's, it's not like I was walking around, you know, pretending. I've, I've always been in touch with my feminine side. You know, it's so. Um, but uh, you're an artist. They yeah. always are. Well, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm interested in in in. I suppose I'm interested in different ways of seeing the world, and part of that right. at that age is in in in. You're also in, interested in different ways of presenting yourself to the world I guess right um so so I had a total laugh at art school absolutely brilliant but but also my parents very wisely had gone that's a great idea but why why don't you why didn't you apply to university at the same time and just defer your your place so of course I arrived in art school going <laughs> I'm just going to have a laugh. I don't need to get into art, some better art school at the end of this. I've got a university waiting for me. Um, so, so I went to Exeter University. Um, I was a year above Tom York from Radiohead. And I think in the same year as Felix from Basement Jacks. Um, and because I'd, I was doing a course called American and Commonwealth Arts, which was a, uh, a Marxist overview of colonial and post-colonial culture. Wow. Uh, you might, How odd. <laughs> well, you might call it woke studies, you know, at this point. Right. So, <laughs> it was, I mean, it was really, to a 17-year-old, when I was making the, the application, it just said, you know, go to America, go to, go to university, spend a year in America, listen to records, watch movies, look at pictures, read a few books. So I was like, sounds fucking great perfect <laughs> um, but the, the the actually really exciting thing and this is where i guess you know if you're looking for the origin story um it was that at cheltenham every i think it was every thursday the the manager of the student bar would give students 50 quid to sort of put on a party a bar party and i did it with my friends damien and grant and that's where I learned to DJ. Basically, that night, that one night, we learned to, and we had a fucking laugh. And um, so I arrived in Exeter 
as a DJ, having done it like twice right. at that point, I think. And I I got adopted by some people who were running a night called the Shakedown, which um, I ended up DJing at, and that um, it was just Simone. It was just the best. I mean, I I get chills when I think about the music that we that was happening there. So there'd already been like Northern Soul. Mm-hmm. It was at the start of the Rare Groove, Rare Groove revival. Then you had um, Wills to play some rockabilly tracks as well sometimes. Then you had Go-Go. You had Early House, and Early House is the best fucking house. You had <laughs> Second Wave of Hip Hop, Daisy Chain stuff, um, you know, Native Tongues and so on. Um, right. and, and then you had all of those fantastic sort of weird UK mashup records plus the sort of early sort of Hacienda-type house that was coming down, um, and then disco. And we, we played a mix of all of those things. So um, it was just a – it was great every Wednesday – every other Wednesday night. And it's the thing about Exeter. Um, it was just fuck all happening when we got there um, because it was mostly posh twats and – and, you know, whilst I might have had a slightly posh twatish background, I'd learned by that point that posh twats are fucking boring. Um, so so there was just a few of us and we were like, there's nothing going on here. So let's let's make let's make things happen. There was a serious academic slash DJ. Oh, what do you mean? No, I, they tried to keep me out two years running. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was uh, I was late for my folklore uh, final, half an hour late because I'd taken too many magic mushrooms the night before. Oh my goodness! See, this is why you had to end up in rock and roll. And I moved to London at the end of it all with no plan whatsoever. I was like, and just hadn't thought about it. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I want to work in the media. You know, this is a an example of of my occasionally fantastic fortune so i called my fairy godmother who is a lady called jacqueline hamilton smith and she was somebody who's a little bit older than me um but she was my first sort of female friend and we kind of grew up together her parents were friends of my parents and she'd moved to london a couple of years before me and I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want telly sales. I don't go. And she went, well, you know, I'm just down the road from you, uh, working at this place called the Power Station. Why don't you come and see me? So I was like, oh, I'll come see you. And I literally walked down the road. She was literally at the end of the road. Um, and she was working at the British version of MTV which is this thing called the power station, because there used to be two different sort of cable companies, or they were satellite companies. Um, and there was a sort of British version of MTV called the power station. And I walked in there and I was like, oh my God, I'm in heaven. You know, because music was absolutely my life at that point. Right. You know, it's how, yeah. it how I constructed my identity. I was really snooty about it, you know. And... Um, she um, she introduced me to the boss, and I was quite pretty at the time, you know, and so I got a job as a runner, and I don't think I've been happier. 
I just, I absolutely loved it. And people would be like, do you mind awfully like making me a cup of tea? And I'd be like, I'm totally happy to make you a cup of tea. <laughs> do you mind awfully if I would, can you take my dog for a walk? I'd be like, fuck yeah, I'll take your dog for a walk. You know, and I, but I read every single music magazine. They had all the music press in there, you know, from Music Week to Sounds or whatever. And all these free records coming in and so on. So I listened to all of the records and and I was just, and, and I, you know, I made tea for the Manic Street Preachers, George with, with Suggs, all these, you know, great people. I swear I saw Davina's first audition tape um, mm-hmm. and she was great even then. Um, and so I sort of tarted around there for, I don't know, about four months, three, four months or something. And then this new show came up and I was like, do you think I could, could I, could I audition for that? And, and I think people were like, you know, it's not very cool for like a runner to be doing that. They, they gave me a shot. And, and so I ended up presenting a thing called Sushi TV, a daily whirl in the pop culture blender. Um, and I was fucking awful. It's like it was like everyone somebody had thrown stuff. in a plank into the middle of the studio and put some Paul Smith clothes on it. Um, but um, I um, so I did that for about two months, and I think I'd spent, as I'm sure a lot of people did when we, you and I were working, I'd spent a lot of time before when I was a runner watching the the presenters and thinking, well, that's fucking easy. I could do that. Mm-hmm. It's easy, that isn't it? That's all, all he's doing is fucking reading those words off the screen. It's a piece of piss that is. And then you get to do it, and you're like, "Hello, I am here, welcoming you to the show." You know, and it's like the distance between what you should be doing and what you're actually doing was was you know it was hilarious, but it was also um, some quite frightening. But Simone, the thing I want to say yeah. is that. Over and above that, like jealousy, and I could do that thing. When I was there, there were times when there were some presenters, and I'm not going to mention any names, but there were some presenters who just did not give a shit. And they'd just turn up, you know, and they would get their script and they would say, you know, they'd do it or whatever, and then they'd fuck off again, having made a grand or something. And I hated them because, and I really did hate them because it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier that music matters. Um, and and it matters to the people who are watching, and and I think it was just it just fucked me off that these people, you know, weren't weren't showing their the respect either for the work, the art, or or for the audience. Um, anyway, yeah. power station got shut down um, because Sky bought BSB and they only had room for one music channel. Um, I came to see Brent. Uh, the head of MTV at the time, and nothing came of that. So I, I um, spent like this very, very shameful few months, um, basically being looked after with uh, looked after by my girlfriend, who would give me a bit of money, and I would buy a packet of silk cut. I'd read two horror videos, and I had to have buy a can of baked beans. And I would smoke hash and just watch horror videos all day. And there was a point where I was like, this is pretty fucking shameful. Actually, I remember I was at Kinky Galinky. You know that? Oh, wow. Cool club. Oh, yes. so, so much fun. 
and, yeah. and I sort of resurrected my sort of drag phase for that. And and I remember somebody saying to me, well, so what do you do? And I was like, I think I was wearing a, it was either a Pucci dress or it would have been a, a gold sequin mini dress at the time. But I remember okay. saying, um, I'm an unemployed television presenter. And I was, and as those words came out of my mouth, I was just like, that is fucking the saddest sentence you have ever said in your life. <laughs> you fucking loser. Oh, I'm sorry, but it's so funny. It's, yeah. And but you were. You actually no, that's were. actually what it was. Wow. So when did you join MTV? Ninety-eight. Ninety-eight you joined it MTV. It might have been ninety-seven, but I think it was ninety-eight, yeah. That late? Yeah. Whoa. All of these dates, by the way, could be totally wrong because I'm not good with numbers. Howie <laughs> um, called up, woke me up, said there's this position for the news anchor. Um, at MTV, are you interested? And I was like, fuck yeah. In my mind, you were at MTV for many, many years, but you can't have been then. Just because I was so old. When I arrived, you must have been like, how old is that man? (laughs) No, hold on. So I was 18 when I joined, but that was in 91. So, okay. Well, so it weren't that much. No, but you were probably, that's, even that stage, like 20 seconds makes a big difference when you're 24 or whatever. Right. But how long were you at the station? Which, what, MTV? How many years? No mm-hmm. idea. No Not idea, really. Well, I, I went remember. to the States in, I went back to the States. I remember sort of, I think it was 1999 because I remember I got into trouble um, for the you were there a lot longer than a year, Toby. That's ridiculous. Uh, okay, you well then maybe ninety-seven. Just... So yeah, no, but it wasn't. I really wasn't there for that long. Wow, but I guess you were there really at the height, though, because that was that was what the a fucking height laugh of popularity. I mean, oh, as, as I mean, I'm not of an apocalyptic. I don't, I don't like apocalyptic thinking. Um, but things aren't going terribly well. It would seem in the world at the moment. And and when I look into the sort of the abyss that seems to be coming much closer to us right now, um, I do think at least we had so much fun in the nineties. We did you know? have a hell of a lot of fun. It was ridiculous. We had golden tickets, <laughs> and and in a way, it, like I I remember saying to my my girlfriend Bear at the time that like this is as close as you can get to being a rock star without actually being a rock star. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, it was sort of better because you didn't have to hang out with the same fucking bunch of blokes <laughs> all the time or whatever. There was, you know, there was so much more. There was a lot of freedom and a lot of access, you know, and also you didn't have to be committed to doing the same thing over and over again like a lot of musicians do. And and our job was pretty easy. I mean, once you got the hang of it, once you knew how to do the presenting, it was pretty easy. We would knock these shows out like bang, 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 bang. Like we'd go on location. I'm sure you must have done the same thing where you're just like, quick, just film them all. Just get them done, get them done, get them done. Because then we were free to go and party. If I was in a band, I would be doing the rehearsal, the sound check, you know, getting ready. for. I mean, it's it'd be great, but it's harder. I think our job was definitely a lot easier. We just had to talk. I don't know. I think, I think didn't we establish early on in this conversation that I'm quite good at making my life difficult for myself? 
Um, so I'm not saying I didn't have a laugh and, and you know, didn't make the most of the sex and drugs and rock and roll, but I, I do, I, I did also write, you know, most of my own material, <laughs> if you can call it material. Right. I did produce a fair bit and I used to like edit packages for news and, and on occasion I would even do some research. You know, um, that's really good. I never did any of those things. I literally would just float in and go, which country are we going to? I had no idea what was going on. And I did. I would do the research on the bands mm. and stuff. You know, I occasionally I would blag it. But generally, you know, I, I and I made sure I was prepared and I was ready to go. But I never really did anything behind the camera. Oh, actually, I shot some B-roll. I did occasionally. James would give me a, you know, a camera, and I would do that. Mm. But um, apart from that, no, I, I just literally just rolled in and did my job. So I think I probably took the easy. Oh, I don't, don't know if it's, if it's easier or, or harder. It's I think the way you did it was was very appropriate to to that particular genre and so on. And like, you know, the the problem with the like indie world that I was sort of in is that it's full of people who think you're that come from MTV. So it's a lot more yeah, complicated, unnecessarily complicated, in my opinion. Yeah. And there's a lot yeah. more sort of like bullshit politics that, that, you know, you had to negotiate and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. so I had to sort of, yeah. And I, and, and I just, yeah, it was just, there was a bit more, bit more behind the scenes work that needed to be done. Plus, yeah. plus, also one of the reasons I moved to the states was that with Alternative Nation, um, in order to when that once that that show started to become successful, which is really once like rock stars started to watch it and talk about it, um, then people try to get on that show in order to seem credible. And and that created a lot of politics. Plus, to get people bands to, bands that we wanted to play, we were told that there was a cost associated with that. So, in order to get the sort of like really properly independent bands on the show, we had to get bigger bands to show and basically overcharge them. We used to charge them for, for having performances on the show. Um, well, this is what I was told. I never saw the accounts. Um, and I mean, no labels would have to quite often pay for yeah, shoots. That's yeah. true. Quite often, if we were like, okay, you want us to come, you know, you're going to have to pay, which, yeah, yeah. But, and you're right about, about the indie bands. I remember at one point I was doing a show in Holland called Countdown and I had to um, interview Talk Talk on stage. And I remember asking questions and literally they would just stand there and completely refuse to even answer mm -hmm. anything. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's, you're right. A lot of these, in, oh, and like Blur, they always were really mean to me. Um, I got my revenge on. A lot of these, yeah, you're right. A lot of those bands well, are a lot, a, harder to do. The thing that, like, you know, to those people, particularly the people who didn't really watch the channel a lot, um, we were figureheads of some kind of corporate monstrosity. And, and so all too often, this happened a lot, actually, when I was doing the film stuff as well, um, that people would treat me as if I was MTV. 
And and imagine it was the same with you and probably a lot of the other um, video jockeys. And and sometimes sometimes I think it might have been appropriate because sometimes you you know these like serious artists would be dealing with somebody who hadn't done any research and had spent three hours worrying about their outfit and their hair. And you fuck all about the person that they were talking to. Um, right. And then but then sometimes, you know, you and I would get the the that that treatment because they'd made the assumption that we were like everybody else. And probably you know, so I can't speak for you, but maybe there were times I hadn't done much um uh yeah, I, I think I, I think with my thing with Party Zone, um, and maybe you experienced this too. We had so many new acts coming onto the show who'd never done TV before. So one of my biggest challenges was um, to calm people's nerves. I mean, I think that was probably like the number one thing to try and get them calm enough to to be able to do an interview. I remember when I went to work for MTV in the states. I I was doing MTV Live, which is this this you know travesty that then became the greater travesty of TRL, and and I was talking to the stylist, and I was like, I cannot fucking believe that I am like we're in the wardrobe room, and I was like, on the other side of that wall is Spinderella, and I've had the hots for Spinderella for like years. Can't believe it's fucking Spinderella. But, you know, the only like the only equivalent would have been like T balls, basically. But like it was Spinderella, and I was like, ah, oh, fucking hell. And the stylist said, "Well, ask her out." I was like, I can't ask Spinderella out. I'm only a fucking video jockey. Um, but that also like, didn't you? That no, of course not. No, I was too 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 nervous. I, I did all right afterwards, don't worry. But like once once I had an understanding that like I sort of moved up a few a few notches. Um but um no, it was like that said to me, like you suddenly I suddenly realized that like being a video jockey in the States was a very, very different thing to being a video jockey. Because yeah. I would never consider yeah. myself to be on any kind of equivalence to like Spinderella at that point. Still don't. America was quite different. I remember whenever we saw the American VJs. So we say we'd be doing an event and there's the European VJs and the American VJs. The American VJs would have this whole entourage of people and there'd be about like 10 people sitting around the camera and doing stuff. And we'd be coming there and literally be me and James, you know, or like we'd have three people and we were just so much more down to earth, I think. Um, even though we were bigger than MTV America. So I don't know why they made all the hoo-ha. But um, but Toby, I want to I want to talk a little bit about your stuff after MTV. I did go slightly nuts in the states. You know, I shaved my head and stuff, and just didn't want to be part of American MTV. But I remember meeting Tom Freston at, at you know it was the top of the pyramid at the time at some Hollywood not Hollywood but like big showbiz party in New York, and he was like, Ooh, "What are you up to?" And I was like, I remember thinking, saying to him, I was like. I'm, I'm finding my way as an artist. And it was absolutely true, but that process took about 15 yeah. fucking years. I started making films at that point as well. And we made a film called The End of the World Again um, that, that won the Dali Award at the International 1999 International Surrealist Film Festival. Um, and that sort of, that really made me sort of go, ooh, you know, may, maybe I could do this. Yeah. Um, 
and and maybe this is what I really want to do. Yeah. So so and also when I lived in the states, I'd I'd started to take pictures because I knew that first year that I worked for MTV, time was moving so quickly. Uh, and I was experiencing so much and I was understanding so little of it that it was like that I used the camera to sort of go, just hold on to that for a minute and we'll go back and look at it later. Wow. And I made my living doing that for a bit. There's one picture specifically that is really well known, I think, which was the 9-11 mm. picture. I used to live in this windowless shed in Brooklyn when, and then I and then I got the apartment next to it. And so I'd gone down into the shed and I came out and the light was absolutely beautiful. Like September light's really special. And I was like, fuck, that's good light. So I went back in and I got this camera that my mum had given me. And her mum had given it to her. And her mum had swapped the camera or swapped some cigarettes for the camera during the Berlin airlift because my grandmother was... Wow. an ambassador's wife in Berlin at the time. And and so, and my mum had said, well, this is a really good camera. And and I, so, so I, I went in to get it when I was like, oh, there's probably, I'll probably get a nice picture. And then I walked up the street, I saw a bunch of Puerto Ricans and a bunch of Hasidic Jews all staring down the street together. And you didn't see those two communities hanging out together. So I was like, what the fuck's going on? I took a picture of them and then I went round the corner. I was like, what are they looking at? I was like, fucking hell. And 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 one of the towers was alight at that point. Um and and so then I took two more pictures. Um and it's I've said this before in a, like another interview, I think, for The Guardian, but it's like it's something really fucked up about being a photographer that your first reaction when you see something like that is to take a picture of it. You know, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's good journalism, but I'm not sure it's good humanity. Right. I remember looking through the, you know, one of the reasons we got this apartment is because it had such a great view of downtown. Um, and so we, I saw that I saw both both towers crumble through through our window. Um, it was just it was just fucking horrendous. Uh, I got contacted by a radio producer um, and I went into Radio 4 and I started making some documentaries for them. Um, And then I made one about, I made a radio documentary about Draco, the star of my first film, The Man Whose Mind Exploded. That radio documentary was also called The The Man Whose Mind Exploded. And people heard that and said, oh, that sounds like it'd make a great film. And I was like, oh, yes, that does, doesn't it? Let's do that. Not having any idea what I was doing. Um, and then um, I um, started filming it, got a little bit of money that bought me a camera and some kit, started visiting Draco to film with him. And then everybody kind of lost interest, partly because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing partly because there wasn't really anything happening per se in the process of filming with Draco. Um, there was no sort of end point, I guess. Um, and, right. uh, and then he died. Um, and by the time he died, there was really only me on the film. 
and and I'd become more of his carer than than his his sort of documentarian, and that's wow. But that was the secret, Simone. That's what I made the film about. The yeah, the thing is, is that like all of the good, like the really good, if they were good, MTV interviews, I think, were well, when it, it did get a bit difficult. You know, and you've got some drama there, yeah. and that's what's being recorded. And if somebody's being a tit to you, sorry, ass to you, um, then um, <laughs> then it's much more interesting to watch. And, and sometimes you can yeah. go yourself I, in I that don't... place and be like, "This is really uncomfortable," but I know it's I know it's highly entertaining. And also, by letting this yeah. person be a dick to you, like that David Holmes story you were saying, that if actually they've been recording that. Um, that would tell the audience everything they needed to know about that person, you know? And those are the things that I have to make the films about. Yeah. No, I have to say, not so much with, with artists being, like, horrible or anything, but just generally I used to really thrive on chaos. You so if we were somewhere at an event and the whole stage started to collapse and and you know we didn't even know if the camera was on, there were no lights and there was no communication. I really loved that. Like the more chaotic it got and the more panicky everyone got, the more I got really calm and would go, Ooh, I like this. I don't know why. Weird, isn't no. it? I mean that's, I, that's I when you say that I was just like, yeah that sounds like you. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why I like that. When I was doing the travel programs, I forgot to mention I did a few of those, but um, people used to say, what's your ideal, like, journey or, you know, whatever. And I would say, true adventure, but without mortal danger. So that's what yeah. you want, is you want to be in an yeah. environment where, you know, institutions are sort of, like, the, the way things are normally done, that's falling apart so you can experiment with new ways of doing things. But at the same time, you don't want anybody to get harmed in the process, ideally. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think that's it. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Hey, Toby, I think I'm going to have to start making an end to this. And I love, by the way, how your whole life seems to be a little bit like that first year that you did that kind of college, whatever, what, what was the thing you did where you just played around and just experimented? Oh, that's very perceptive, yeah. I, I that's agree. kind of how your life has been. You've been experimenting with all these different art forms and you think this is the one for you? Um, well, I, I mean, I think it's, I guess it, I guess it, I guess it is. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like the older I get, the more I just want to be a part of everything and I want my, you know, you want, I think you're, you're, I think you can be comfortable with your end if you don't matter to yourself so much, you know. Um, so the goal for me is is to communicate with other people. Um, and I think part of the problem with, not problem, but with film, like it's, I love, I love, I mean, I work with difficult people. That's kind of what I do. But interesting people, people who see the world differently how I do and I learn in that process and hopefully the audience of my work you know gets that but but I I do miss I do I really miss actually the the contact I had with the audience when I worked at MTV I loved that about alternative nation it was like the knowing this sort of two-way thing that was going on with that 
And that's a bit harder to get with films because they're sort of, by the time they get to an audience, they're sort of, right. you know, they're, they're, st- they're like a year from when you've made them or whatever, right? As opposed to like, yeah. so, um, but um, I, um, I don't know. I also like, I really like gardening. I make films about gardens anyway. That's my sort of day job. And I've also, um, have you seen my shell work? It's a, uh, it's, it's occupational therapy, you know, and, and it's, um, <laughs> it's a sort of, it, it's, it's very, very calming. And it's like, it's like doing a sort yeah. of improvisational jigsaw, you know, it kind of, my, my big pretentious theory about art is that we already know inside of ourselves, everything we, we carry the universe within us. And, and it's the artist's job is just to draw those truths out of the other dimension into this one and make sense and shape of them. Yeah. You're just a true artist in every sense of the word. I mean, yeah. It's taken me for fucking ever to get here, though. I do wish I'd started a bit sooner. But I always think, I just, honestly, I think, like, wouldn't it be good if you'd actually stayed at art school, then gone to film school and actually made films? You might, you know, be making, like, proper films by now. But then I think, it's like, think about what you were like when you were 24. And then somebody comes to you and says, do you want to, like, I don't know, fly all over the world, meet famous people, go to parties, get drunk, have a laugh, get loads of free records, go and go to all these incredible gigs. Do you want to do that for, like, 10 years? And who the fuck is going to say no to that? Exactly. We were the lucky ones. Toby, it's so lovely to see you again. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Thank you, Toby. Thank you. All right. Big kiss.